So Psalm 18 is where we're going to be for the lesson. Um, this is a very large psalm. Um, so kind of like the study of the Proverbs, um, this isn't going to be a sermon where we're really able to delve in phrase by phrase. Um, this is a very rich psalm. Um, but we're just going to be working on trying to get the, the main ideas of the sections of the psalm here. Um, psalm 18, if there's a psalm to understand really, really well, uh, psalm 18, I think, is that psalm. It's my understanding there's only one, one verse in Psalm 18 that's quoted in the New Testament, whereas a psalm like Psalm 110, Psalm 110 is the most quoted section of the Old Testament in general. But I think Psalm 18 really encapsulates and really brings together what the Psalms are all about, what having a relationship with God is all about. And I think in Psalm 18, we really understand who the God of David really is and why David had such a profound love for God, uh, like he communicated in Psalm 16, which we studied a few weeks ago. Um, Psalm 18, again, just with kind of trying to heighten the importance of this psalm, this is the only psalm that is communicated nearly word for word outside of the book of Psalms. So 2 Samuel 22. In 2 Samuel 22, in a section of 2 Samuel that is kind of reflecting generally on areas of David's life and what made David such a special man of God? Psalm 18 is nearly word for word written as well in 2 Samuel 22. And again, just the fact that you have this very large psalm literally written in two separate books of the Bible, nearly word for word, I think really tells us something about how important this psalm is. And again, encapsulating why David loved God so much and who the God of David really was. I want you to notice the heading of this psalm. Um, there, there usually are a couple headings for psalms or sections of the psalms. One is not inspired. So the New American Standard, underneath Psalm 18, it says, The Lord prays for giving deliverance. Um, that's not an inspired insertion. That's just translators giving maybe just a summary. Underneath that, you'll see it says, For the choir director, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spoke to the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said, that is an inspired section. So you'll see in like Psalm 17, the heading says a prayer of David. That also would be an inspired section. But in Psalm 18, that, um, that heading is actually just a part of um, the section that recounts and is the, uh, the rewording of the same psalm in 2 Samuel 22. Uh, it's just inserted in with the rest of the psalm, not as a heading. So again, you look at that, that heading, and you can see that this is encapsulating the life of David when he was delivered from his enemies from the hand of Saul. And so this is a grand reflection that David makes of thinking about what God had done for him and the significance of what's been accomplished in his life because of God's power and his faithfulness in his life. So we're going to start with verses 119 in the scripture reading um, and really reflect on some lessons from the way that David sees God delivering him in this section. I'm going to start with reading sections 1 through 3 again, and I want you to note that David gives 10 separate descriptions of who the Lord is to him. 
So verse 1. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer. My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. So just very quickly, where we see these ten descriptions. In verse 1, David calls God his strength, his rock in verse 2, his fortress, his deliverer. My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, the shield, or my shield, the horn of my salvation, and my stronghold. These are ten separate descriptions that, again, have a similar way of conveying who God is. But you can see here that David loves God profusely and is really a central reason why he loves God. So verse 1, when I mentioned that Psalm 18 is nearly word for word in 2 Samuel 22, Psalm 18 is word for word in 2 Samuel 22. Except for this phrase in verse 1. I love you, O Lord, my strength. Is not in 2 Samuel 22. That is something that is unique to Psalm 18. This word, love, is very important. Would you be surprised if I told you, this is the only time in the entire Old Testament where this is said to God. This is the only time in the entire Old Testament that records somebody explicitly telling God, I love you. Another interesting thing about this, this particular Hebrew word for love, when it's expressed in the positive, so like when I mean in the positive, other times it's like talked about will not love or will not have compassion. So there's times where it's used as word in the negative. Whenever it's used in the positive to express love, it is only, only used of God's expressing love for his people. And it's translated for God's covenantal compassion and love for his people. So I think we can gather from this that David is expressing a love for God that is like God's own love for him. And what David reflects the most on when you have all of these ideas in the psalm put together, what is the grand application for David? You put all of this together from beginning to end. David simply says to God, I love you. This is a word that in marriage can be very special, but very common. Right? We tell our spouses, yeah, I love you. I love you. And every time we say it, we mean it. But again, I want you to see how special this is. That this is not a word that with people and God is just used all the time or used passively. This means more than we can possibly understand in the psalm. This is David expressing at the culmination of all that's been done, the culmination of everything he knows of God and the reasons why he loves God, for him to say, I love you, is the culmination of all of those things. I want you to think about this. A few weeks ago, we talked about Psalm 16 and how David has this rich relationship with God and gives so many reasons why he loves him. What kind of heart do you think this would cultivate in David and serving him? I want to put forward that seeing God in this way as a shield, a fortress, his strength, his deliverance, his salvation, and seeing it so tangibly and personally. This is the key to having a tender heart 
that is deeply passionate to please God. Not just wanting to keep what has to be done or just tell me what I have to do and get away with, but rather this is an attitude where this psalmist, whoever it may be, whether it's David writing Psalm 18 or another writer of a psalm expressing similar things, the psalmists had an earnest desire to want to please God because of this attitude. And think about how tenderhearted this would make them about sin and displeasing them. Would someone who sees God in this way treat sin lightly? Would they think passively about doing something that would displease God potentially or hurt their relationship with God? Now, these descriptions are the key to having the deepest, richest, most zealous relationship with God, seeing him as a person who can be pleased or displeased by our decisions in that relationship. I want to read 4 through 19 again. I want you, as we're reading this, if you even have to kind of close your eyes as I read it, I want you to visualize this and even hear the sounds and kind of see the situation as it plays out like a scene. Because this is a scene, and there are things that are happening that are very loud and big and beautiful, and I think we can actually, in some way, really understand what's being said here visually. So verse 4 through 19, again, think about this scene that David portrays. The cords of death encompass me, and the torrents of ungodliness terrified me. The cords of Sheol surrounded me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried to my God for help. He heard my voice out of his temple, and my cry for help before him came into his ears. Then the earth shook and quaked, and the foundations of the mountains were trembling and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up out of his nostrils, and fire from his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down with thick darkness under his feet. He rode upon a cherub and flew and sped upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his hiding place, his canopy around him. Darkness of waters, thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him passed his thick clouds, hailstones and coals of fire. The Lord also thundered in the heavens and the Most High uttered his voice. Hailstones and coals of fire. He sent out his arrows and scattered them and lightning flashes in abundance and routed them. And the channels of water appeared, and the foundations of the world were laid bare, and you rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my stay. He brought me forth into a, also into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted me. So I need to really think about this and the scene here. I think in verse 4, particularly, um, the way I've imagined this is you imagine David kind of in a dark, stormy situation as it's visualized here. And kind of look at how it ends in verse 16. He drew me out of many waters. So I picture David drowning and these cords of ungodliness are pulling him down. Everything is very loud and chaotic, and David is in his drowning state. He cries out to the Lord for help, and I imagine everything just slows down very suddenly, and the earth shakes. And you imagine the scene where it's like God's nostrils. You imagine just kind of seeing 
smoke billowing out and fire coming out of God's nostrils. And again, in almost like slow motion, God rips through the sky. And I imagine as a jet creates a sonic boom flying through the air, that it's as if a sonic boom is created as God goes to David's rescue. But there are these billowing dark clouds that are uh, giving an indication that God's judgment is coming. And out of these dark clouds suddenly passes this verse 12, this brightness of light. And out of this blinding brightness comes these hailstones and coals of fire, like a volcanic eruption out of the brightness of these clouds. And then in verse 14, you imagine this multitude of lightning bolts flashing out and everything that is causing David distress is routed away and destroyed. And you imagine the waters being so separated. In verse 15, it says the foundations of the world are laid bare. There were no depths that David could sink where God would not reach him. And it's all very personal. So in verse 16, this isn't an angel of the Lord who's come to meet David. You imagine God, and you know, again, just kind of the silliness of how I imagine this. I imagine God's fingers being bigger than David. So I imagine God gently grabbing David and setting him on this high and secure place of safety. And David just standing there, utterly astonished at what God has done to him. I think there's something important to think about with this. You know, if you read through David's life, where did this event happen? If you read first or second Samuel, you're not going to find it. So I think it's an important question was, was David exaggerating? You know, is he being fictitious and kind of like people write sci-fi novels and make, you know, fictional movies with great special effects and Maybe there's lessons in it, and maybe it's very cool, but, you know, it's not really the truth, right? No. Here, David is, by faith, describing what is the actual truth in his life. I think a helpful way to consider this is in relation to baptism. We won't turn here, but just as a reference in Colossians chapter 2, when Paul reflects on our baptism, when we're saved from our sin, you know, physically, what you visibly see happen, right? What, what happens? Somebody confesses Jesus as Lord. They understand that to receive the remission of sins, they need to be immersed in water. Um, so all you see that is someone, is that it? No, in Colossians 2, Paul would reflect on the events of our baptism in a completely different perspective. He'd say that you were dead in your transgressions. And what God did is he separated from you. He separated you from your body of sin. He raised you up and joined you with Jesus, crucifying your old body of sin to be permanently done away with. And he didn't just resurrect you to new life. He raised up your citizenship to be seated with him in the heavenly places. So let me ask you this then. Is that an exaggeration and fiction? Or, when Paul reflects on our salvation in those letters, is that the real truth? And is that the greater and more actual truth beyond what we may visibly see? I want you to consider something very serious. Our faith and zeal for God suffers greatly 
when we fail to see God's ongoing deliverances in our lives as David. I've referenced this not too long in the past. It was a few months ago. I think I read up in a, in a sermon. Remember, Eve and I were at a friend's house, and they were talking to someone, reflecting on how they talked to someone. They were, they were talking to someone about the gospel, and this person was very excited and said, well, how is God working in your life? And this is someone who's lost, right? So they're, they're just asking, well, how is God working in your life? And what they told them is, well, you know, we're not really kind of costal, so we don't really, like, we don't want to think about God in that way. It's like, what? Is God not active in our lives? Is God not more active in our lives now than with David? So I think we need to understand that the way that David reflected on God's deliverance in his life, it was the truth. When we see Paul reflect on our baptism, when we see Paul at the end of the lesson reflect on God's deliverance, people of faith would recognize that God was powerfully at work. And when we, when we are in distress, God hears. And if you look back, you look back at verse 6 and 7. When God heard, there was a powerful response. And God was angry with the things that were causing David distress and were endangering God's promises in David's life. Do you realize how encouraging it would be if when we are in distress or if we are discouraged and if we realize God is angry more with what is causing me distress than he will be with me by getting into that distress. And that God is zealously seeking to put all of that to an end and preserve me in the end blameless. Did David make mistakes in his conflicts with Saul? Was he weak? Did David sin in his conflicts with Saul? There's a clear yes to all of those questions. But God was zealously going to put an end to the things that were distressing David. As David waited on the Lord, God would reward him. So that leads us to verse 20 through 28. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He has recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his ordinances were before me, and I did not put away his statutes from me. I was also blameless with him, and I kept myself in my ankle. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. With the kind, you show yourself kind. The blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the pure, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you show yourself astute. For you save an afflicted people, the haughty eyes you abase. For you light my lamp. The Lord my God illumines my darkness. I think something we have to remember is David suffered great pains, great losses, great tragedies, as he was diligently striving to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. All the while he was suffering these conflicts with Saul and with other enemies in that time. Did God let David down? As David was committing himself to the Lord, trusting that as he just continued to serve God and continued to do his will, as Saul seemed to be succeeding, 100% rebelling against God's will, not acting at all in righteousness or in favor with God. And as Saul seemed to be the one in power, as Saul seemed to have all of this freedom to act in rebellion, as David was having to hide away and be constrained and suffer emotional doubt and turmoil, 
Did ultimately did God let him down? No. God rewarded him for his righteousness. But I think there's a danger with so many psalms, so many things in the psalms. There, there's reading, there's a way of reading the psalms where it can be very easy to come to dramatically wrong conclusions uh, when the psalmists are affirming things of faith. Um, are these self-righteous affirmations? And so David says, hey, God's rewarded me according to my righteousness. It's a good thing, like, whoa, that sounds a little workspace, right? Like you have somehow earned righteousness through your works. I think we need to be careful and slow down a little bit. Look at Psalm 25. Look at Psalm 25, verses 4 through 11. I think we can imply things in so many things in the Psalms that the psalmists themselves are not implying. If we'll kind of take a context into account and think about greater relations of attitude we see in the Psalms and otherwise. So look at Psalm 25, 4 through 11. So David says he was keeping the ways of the Lord. Look at verse 4 of Psalm 25. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. Remember, O Lord, your compassion and your loving kindness, for they have been from a whole. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your loving kindness, remember me. For your goodness' sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs who? Sinners in the way. He leads the humble in justice, and he teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Here's the point. David was not ignorant of his weakness or his sin. And so these affirmations he makes in Psalm 18 is not him placing confidence in the merit of his righteousness, but rather through his suffering and his waiting on the Lord, he is affirming when I keep the ways of the Lord, God will not let me down. And no matter how long it takes, no matter how much I have to lose to serve God, it will always be proven worth it in the end. These are affirmations of confidence not in David's own strength, and we'll see that as the psalm goes on. Rather, it's David showing his confidence in God's power and forgiveness. That when God says, I forgive you, David believes it. When God forgives and God restores, when God empowers for service, David believes what God says. And you see that throughout the psalms, that there is a humility in God's covenant and in serving him. But God's way is a way of humble recognition of personal weakness and sin to then depend on his gracious and faithful mercies. We see this same principle in 1 John, and I would like to turn to this relation. I think this is really important to see that this same attitude toward God and his ways is woven into the new covenants as well in our relationship with Jesus. Again, we see the same conundrum of having confidence in God's way it's righteousness, but that confidence is not a merit of works, but rather what God promises in mercy. First John 1, 5 through 9, and then we'll look at verses 3 through 5, chapter 2. First John chapter 1, verse 5. 
This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and you walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So just from those verses, does God forgive us or doesn't? Do I have sin or don't I? You know, and what he's saying, well, he's faithful to cleanse you from sin, but if you say you don't have sin, then you're a liar. So it's like, well, it feels like the rug's being pulled out from underneath. But it's that same balance we see in Psalm 25. That presumption, it makes us depend on the Lord and his promises and leads us into a humility that is very unique to faith. Look at the next chapter, verses 3 through 5. By this we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. Why had David clung to God's commandments, the statutes, and ordinances? Because he loved God. Because he wanted to see God and be close to God. Because he wanted people to see the beauty of God's fulfillment, of keeping God's promises, of God keeping his promises to David. And again, it's not that David is saying there was never any sin in his life or presuming that he has no need of grace or mercy, but rather he's expressing his confidence that God will never put to shame those who wait on him and serve him. Um, so again, these statements are bold affirmations of God's faithfulness to keep his promises to those genuinely seeking. And I think we see this motivation further in 25 through 28. The kind you show yourself kind, the blameless you show yourself blameless, the pure you show yourself pure. Remember in Matthew 5, one of the Beatitudes, where Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's not just see God in eternity, although that certainly would be a part of it. But I think like the psalm here, that having a pure heart equips us to truly see God. Just like David could see that God was actively fulfilling his promises, answering his prayers, very present in his trials. God was very actively fulfilling his promises methodically in his life. We as well with pure hearts learn to see God as he is, to learn more about God, to learn about the lengths of his righteousness and the glory of the way that he loves us. So the greatest promise of obedience, the obedience that is rooted in faith, is a heart that can clearly see God. Go about to 29 through 34 and see how David reflects on God empowering For by you I can run upon a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. As for God, his way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The God who girds me with strength and makes my way blameless. Again, giving credit to God for equipping him to serve him. Verse 33. He makes my feet like hinds feet and sets me upon my high places. He trains my hands for battle so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. 
You have also given me the shield of your salvation, and your right hand upholds me. Your gentleness makes me great. You enlarge my steps under me, and my feet have not slipped. One of the big things with this section is that God had given David not just a measure of strength, not just enough strength. It's like God had given David superpowers. You know, it's like he had given David an overabundance of strength. And it's not that, again, David was you know, speaking fiction or, well, you know, it's just beautiful poetry. And we'll connect these things to some New Testament ideas in a moment. But again, David is communicating an unseen truth of God doing what was impossible in David's life. Think about verse 29. You can run upon a troop, leap over a wall. Think about verse 33, his speed or like high speed, I think the swiftness that God gives. Look at verse 34. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. Here's the point. In God's purpose in David's life, no obstacle is too high. No force is too strong. No army is too many. No defense is too fortified. And no enemy is too hidden. God equipped David to overcome every obstacle, to overcome every enemy, whether that be personal within himself or people like Saul and those with him or those that would come after him. As we'll see at the end of the psalm, God would ensure that David would reign victoriously in the end. And that although those who were opposed to David got ample opportunity to change, if they would not surrender, they would fall, and David would see it. I want you to note verse 30. Where was David finding the strength? David was a prophet, right? But I want you to look at verse 30. The word of the Lord is tried. Just like we talked about with the Lord rewarding me according to my righteousness, David was putting God's promises to the test. That as he would go for broke, and just commit himself to the Lord, no matter the pain, no matter the sacrifice, no matter the loss, no matter the time, he would always find that you can push the word of God through the fire, and God will always prove himself true in the end. You can put God's word to the test, and he will show himself blameless, he will show himself faithful, and he will prove to be your shield. And again, just like it cripples our faith when we fail to see the glory of God's deliverance in our lives. It cripples our faith when we don't realize or get enough credit to the power that God gives us. I want you to notice something and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. And I want you to just really notice how these things are talked about by Paul to the Ephesian Christians. And just think if, if you think about God in the same way. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18 to start. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. How important is the availability of God's power to God's people? I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches, the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the what? The surpassing greatness of his power toward us to believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ. When he raised him from the dead and seated him 
uh, at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Look at Ephesians chapter 3. And this is one of those themes that is woven through the letter to the Ephesians. You see it in verse 16 of chapter 3, but I, I want to draw your attention to verse 20 and 21, where it's mentioned there. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Look at chapter 6, verse 10, where we'll shortly be next month in our series of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. This is something that David was very familiar with and practiced in his faith. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And there's so many times in our relationship with God where the world, where Satan behind the veil, is trying to make it seem like serving God is just too unsafe. There's too much pain. It's too unstable. And if you get too zealous for God, I mean, it's likely you'll fall away anyway. But is that what David saw in his relationship with God? And you think about from the outside, seeing David's relationship with Saul, it looks pretty unstable. David's having to run all over Judah and that region around it. He's having to hide away in caves. So again, it looks like David is in a pretty unstable and unappealing position. But it, did David see his situation in reflection as unstable, as unsafe, or like the ground he was standing on? You know, like he could have the rug pulled out quickly from underneath him. I want you to go back to Psalm 18 and look at the statements in 35 and 36. So look at verse 36. So again, kind of visually imagining this. I'm imagining David... You know, things are happening that, you know, it's almost like the ground is shaking and his foot gives way and it ends up stepping to the side and, you know, there's nothing there. And so he's like, he's going to fall off a cliff. And I imagine God, again, just the silliness of my imagination here, that the ground just literally expands out and makes a new step for David to stand, get his footing, and he stands firm. So you notice, you enlarge my steps under me. My feet have not slipped. So I don't think it's that David's foot is growing bigger, but that God creates new ground for David to have a stable place to stand. You look at verse 35. Now, I mentioned this in, in the um, lessons on marriage, how important gentleness is in a relationship. So you'd think, you know, at the end of verse 35, you know, your power makes me great or your strength gives me conquering ability. But as he's concluding, thinking about ways that God empowers him, he says, it's your gentleness. Well, that God has all of this power that he's using to equip me and strengthen me. But really the greatest thing is God could hurt me. He's so powerful. And sin enrages him. And yet God is so merciful. And tender. He's so careful. He's so constant. I haven't been married very long and certainly have not practiced this by any significant means, but 
What I've discovered in marriage is that if even one person in a conflict will determine to be gentle because of their faith, when there is aggression, that gentleness equips self-reflection, humility. It equips a tender heart. It equips a person to have a deeper, more heartfelt respect for the other. As you imagine as David is weak, as you imagine that David sees his need for forgiveness in his life, recognizing the restraint that God is practicing to give those opportunities and to allow David to reflect, I was confident in the Lord to exercise such restraint would draw him even closer. Let's finally look at 37 to the end of the chapter. Pursued my enemies and overtook them. I did not turn back until they were consumed. I shattered them so that they were not able to rise. It fell under my feet. For you have girded me with strength for battle. You have subdued under me those who rose up against me. You have also made my enemies turn their backs to me, and I destroyed those who hated me. They cried for help, but there was none to save, even to the Lord, but he did not answer them. Then I beat them fine as the dust before the wind. I emptied them out as the mire of the streets. You have delivered me from the contentions of the people. You have placed me as head of the nations. A people whom I have not known serve me. As soon as they hear, they obey me. Foreigners submit to me. Foreigners fade away and come trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives, just as we sung earlier in Jason's song chase. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation. The God who executes vengeance for me and subdues people under me. He delivers me from my enemies. Surely you lift me above those who rise up against me. You rescue me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks to you among the nations, O Lord, and I will praise, I will sing praises to your name. He gives great deliverances, or great deliverance to his king, and shows loving kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. So like we talked about, just a few psalms after the Psalm 27 ends with one of the first <laughs> exhortations to the reader. Psalm 27 says, be strong, let your heart take courage. Wait, yes, wait for the Lord. David is reaching out to the reader with these kinds of experiences in mind and is saying, keep God's way. Wait for him. Put his promises to the test. You know what David found? Just as Jesus proved on the cross, you keep God's way to the end, and victory is certain. It's not only certain, it's overwhelming. This We'll talk about this in just a moment, but these statements, I think, surpass what David experienced and become messianic in their nature. But the victory that God won for David was greater than he could have imagined, and there was no force, no authority that could put it to a stop. There was no force, no authority that was able to deter it. Why do you think about how this psalm begins compared to where it ends? That it began with distress, David crying out to the Lord. Then it went into David being put in a stable place to serve God and to depend on him. David being empowered to accomplish God's will. And then God fulfilling it by granting him victory and doing exactly what he had originally promised. So Romans 15 verse 9 quotes verse 49 as Jesus' own words. And so Jesus takes these truths of victory and he takes them further. 
just as he does with so many things in the Old Testament. But these statements of God giving power, God delivering from the depths, all of these things are more fully realized in the life, the death, and especially the resurrection of Jesus to be sitting on the throne of God in heaven. But I want you to understand this as well, that there's a way that we are related to these things too. Romans chapter 16 ends with a very strange note. You know, it's a lot of encouraging things, and you know, Paul warns them to be aware of those who cause divisions. And then in Romans 16, verse 20, Paul inserts, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. It's the idea that the Romans are going to suffer conflicts just like they do, right? In serving God, in working together locally, just as we experience here, there's going to be turmoil, and through many tribulations, we will enter the kingdom of God. We need reassurance that the one who is behind every ailment, every disturbance, every obstacle, that although we have an enemy, God will crush him under our feet. Just as David stood victorious in the end, God's promises, despite the matter, despite what we suffer now, God will grant us perfect victory in the end. I want to conclude with 2 Timothy chapter 4. And closing the thought that God, not God's, but God will win every battle. He will deliver us from every evil because of his love that's been exemplified in Jesus toward us. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4. And I think Paul pulls together the ideas of Psalm 18 and these statements he makes about God. Again, 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 4. 14 through 16. 2 Timothy 4, 16-18. At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted May it not be counted against them. So, Paul's alone. And I want you to notice, how does Paul see God? And think about how the way that he sees God relates to how David would see God in Psalm 18, verse 17. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the proclamation might be fully accomplished, that all the Gentiles might hear that I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me, not just from the future when he dies and ultimately is gone to be with the Lord, but he says the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Who would not want to serve a God like this? Who would want to be an enemy of a God who does this for his being? If you're here and you are still an enemy of God, I would appeal to you to see the urgency of accepting what God has offered in his son. And the covenant that is so solidly exemplified, not just in Jesus' resurrection, but in the lives of so many who have put God's promises to the test and have always found him to be loving and true in all that he says. If there's anything we can do for you this morning, bring it forward. Please stand